It's almost a cliche to say it, but over the last several months, the trajectory of our world and our state has changed drastically. Tens of thousands of people have died from COVID-19 in the United States, tens of millions have lost their jobs, and many of us are either working from home or potentially risking our health and safety working in an essential job. This is an entirely new experience for almost all of us. There just isn't a good societal reference point for what is happening. Corporate America has adopted the now ubiquitous phrase, these uncertain times, to describe our current situation. It feels like the lukewarm product of a marketing department, but it does somewhat accurately describe how many people feel about their lives right now. There is a lot of uncertainty. A virus like COVID-19 is invisible, and the methods we have to fight back are interrupting our lives in profound ways. This episode is about clearing up misconceptions the Delawareans may have about public health policy, unemployment, and how workers in the small business community are being affected. A moment like this one requires trust in our public officials. I spoke to three of them. Delaware Department of Health and Social Services Secretary, Dr. Kara Odom-Walker, Department of Labor Secretary, Saran Cade, and Division of Small Business Director, Damian DeStefano, to learn more about what our state is actually doing to address the COVID-19 pandemic and why. Throughout this episode, a lot of resources get mentioned. We will add links to the description, but right up front, if you or a loved one feels sick, please talk to your doctor and call 211 in Delaware to get answers to your questions about COVID-19. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. Oh, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kara Odom-Walker. I serve as the Cabinet Secretary of the Delaware Department of Health and Social Services. Pleased to be with you today. So COVID-19 is our short definition uh, name for coronavirus disease 2019. Uh, there are many, many viruses out there, and we often um, name them but in medicine, we, we really only create these acronyms for things that create a syndrome effect. So like influenza, we know that there's a, you know, a mortality that's associated with, we know there's a severity, and we know that um, there are certain characteristics of the disease that uh, are unique. And then for this particular virus, what is unique is that it is completely new to our population, to humans, and it is creating... Um, a, a disease and a pandemic that has a higher mortality, and yet we have no known cure, no known treatment, and uh, no known vaccine. Uh, we also don't have immunity built up in the population yet, so everyone is vulnerable. And you may see people calling it the novel coronavirus. That's right. I mean, usually we do have coronavirus versions and strains circulating around that don't cause this level of illness. And so it is a particularly unique time um, for our, our globe um, and our global community and one that we're tracking very closely because of the mortality associated with it. So the curve is a term that epidemiologists monitor. The curve is the increase in the number of people who have the disease, and we're watching those numbers um, grow, unfortunately, around the globe um, at a, a pace that is logarithmic, which means each individual person who is contagious can spread it to two or three people or more if they are in certain circumstances. And what we're trying to do by flattening the curve is decrease that spread from two to three to maybe one person, and maybe that's a household member or some other individual in the population. Flattening the curve will help us from that steep 
acceleration that you've seen projected and in places that have not been able to contain the disease, that spike has led to um, challenges with making sure people have the healthcare needs met, whether it's hospitalization or ventilators. So we are working very hard to flatten the curve, to make sure that our healthcare system can keep up and that we can keep the population safe. Now, I don't want to go into specific numbers because they change so much from day to day, but here in Delaware, what does that curve look like? Are you or other public health officials noticing uh, trends? Um, are we beginning to flatten that curve in your opinion? What, what I believe based on the data that we've seen is that because of social distancing and the measures that Governor Carney has put into place, we have been very fortunate to have achieved degrees of flattening the curve. Um, we know this because our hospitals are not overcrowded and we have not had to stand up alternative care locations in um, stadiums and in tents, as you may have seen in the media. It also means that we've had enough ventilator capacity to keep up with the number of people who have severe uh, disease and need help breathing to, to get through the course of this illness. That doesn't mean we'll always be there. And um, what is challenging right now is knowing when we can claim successful containment of, of the coronavirus of COVID-19. We continue to watch those numbers daily and we'll continue to report on how many people are ending up in the hospital, the emergency room who have uh, COVID-19. We'll also continue to monitor the number of people who are on ventilators and need ICU support. But I believe that because of the rapid decisions that Governor Carney has made, we have had a lot of success in Delaware uh, to this point, achieving some degree of flattening the curve. Now, we won't know how effective that is until we're much further along. And certainly, if we were to reopen um, the economy too soon, you would see an increase in that curve. And you might see a, a double bump, right, where all of a sudden you go back to life as, as previously um, conducted and all of a sudden you see another spike. And so we're trying to also avoid that with a cautious, measured approach to following the disease, following the curve, following the trends, and, and see how we can balance keeping people safe, but also thinking about the time when we can start to resume some aspect of a new normal. And that is um, going to be a very careful measured approach, but one that I, I think that Delawareans can handle based on what we've seen with this first phase of social distancing. Um, there's a lot of talk about quote unquote reopening and Governor Carney has um, stuck to his guns about making sure that we're following the science on that. And I wanted to know you know, what kind of data are public health officials looking at to try and reinform how and when we reopen? How is public health policy influencing um, that decision? Sure. What we're looking at very closely is a set of measures. We're looking at indicators of spread of disease, uh, severity of disease, and whether, again, the healthcare system can keep up. We're looking carefully to see which of those indicators are most appropriate because, as you know, we have small numbers, and when we start to test in areas that are so-called hot spots, like in Sussex County, we might see this unusual peak that we shouldn't penalize ourselves for immediately. It really does mean let's see what happens on average and how do you uh, make sure that we're looking at trends in the right context because you don't want to limit testing unreasonably just to make sure that we're um, watching that 
that curve. Um, so we're moving to a place where there are two essential factors. We have to have enough tests to test anyone who needs it. Um, that means essential workers, healthcare workers, but also um, people who are symptomatic and asymptomatic, people who do not have symptoms at some point will likely need to be part of this routine, regular testing that's widespread and community accessible. Um, but we'll also have to be at a place where we can make sure that the trends are, are, are heading in a place where we don't have large numbers of people exposed to coronavirus. Um, so the mixture of that is very careful, and we're looking and trying to make sure that we have the right measures in place when we make that announcement coming very soon, even today. They will be available publicly so that anyone can look at what measures we're using to redetermine when Delaware is ready to reopen. What we do know is that um, information is evolving quickly, and I'm thankful for the scientists who are quickly trying to get good information out there for the public to understand. What we thought originally is that the mortality rate of COVID-19 was somewhere in the 2 to 3.4% range, and those were estimates from China, from Wuhan. But um, what we've seen is that many people who were asymptomatic were positive and not tested, and so that mortality rate has dropped to maybe about 1.5%. Um, seasonal flu, for comparison, the death rate is about 0.1%. But we know a lot about people who are both requiring hospitalization and ICU support and people who are able to manage at home. What we also know is, as you said, about um, one in five people over age 80 may need hospitalization for uh, this infection to help them get through some of the serious consequences. Uh, but people in younger age groups certainly are getting sick and severely so. I mean, they are also requiring hospitalization. Um, fortunately, fewer of them are requiring ICU stays or ventilator support, but we're still learning about those numbers. We're learning about what puts people in that high-risk category you know, some studies have said maybe men are more likely to become severely ill. Maybe it's people with certain health conditions, um, and that information continues to evolve as we understand and track patterns of this disease and the spread. You mentioned the flu, so I wanted to do some myth-busting really quickly. And first of all, get your impression on how do you respond to uh, comments people make where they compare COVID-19 to, say, the seasonal flu? Yeah, unfortunately, the flu has been around in the population for a very long, long time, and we've had adequate time to develop vaccines that we adjust annually, depending on what strain is circulating globally. Uh, we also have treatments, including uh, antivirals and medicines that help combat the, the ill effects of the flu. We also have very easily accessible testing in any urgent care and physician's office to understand whether people have been exposed and are positive to flu. And, and we've had time to test those and make sure that the flu vaccine is effective and safe. And we've also had time to do the same with treatment modalities, a lot of time. Um, so what is very unique about this is not only the high death rate um, from COVID-19, but it's also the fact we have no built-up immunity to this particular virus in the widespread community. We have no uh, known treatment, and we have no known vaccine. We are experimenting with all of those. We are trying to quickly develop a safe and effective vaccine. We are trying to quickly develop a safe and effective uh, medication and treatment um, that will comprehensively block some of the impacts of this virus, and we do not have that. So for people to unreasonably compare this to flu, I think is very dangerous 
misperception that we as humans have figured out how to um, build up our own internal defenses against this this virus. And we have not evolved to that point. And we are uh, learning very quickly that, uh, unfortunately, there are things that put us more at risk. And we just are, are trying to figure out how to manage that. That relates to something else you mentioned earlier, which is the idea of herd immunity. And there are also some people who are suggesting that we need to somehow encourage building herd immunity. And that might mean more people getting infected. And what are, what is your response to that idea? Yeah, sadly, we don't know enough about this virus and our immune systems. And what we have seen is even healthy people who are exposed are dying from uh, this illness. So the thought to expose large numbers of, of potentially healthier individuals to build up herd immunity is very dangerous and would result in the death of many, many people. Uh, we would overwhelm our healthcare capacity and um, lose many of the, the very people we're trying most to protect through any kind of strategy like this. Uh, unfortunately, we do know that people in older age categories are being exposed asymptomatically in nursing homes and um, in other kinds of facility-based settings. We, we would definitely expose them through any strategy around herd immunity, uh, even greater, and, and definitely have a, a lot more mortality that we would not be able to keep pace with. I don't want to be in a place where we have to decide who is uh, most likely to benefit from a ventilator or an ICU bed. I don't want to be in a place where we have to make a very hard decision about who deserves to live or die. And for that reason, I think it's really important we avoid strategies around herd immunity at this point in time. What we also don't know is whether um, prior exposure and resolution of symptoms is actually protective for a second round. There are people who have gotten it so-called twice. We don't know a lot about that. I think we have a lot more to learn before we can assume that even single, single exposure will generate enough of an immune response to protect you in the future. As you know, many vaccines often require a booster. You know, they require two or three doses uh, of the vaccine. It may be the same with coronavirus, where you have to have multiple mini exposures to build up um, immunity. And, and we don't know right now what that looks like and how uh, the body will respond. I want to underscore that we all need to act as though we have coronavirus or are being exposed to it. Uh, part of the measures to keep everyone safe are to make sure that you're washing your hands, you're covering a cough, covering a sneeze, and that you maintain that six feet distance. We don't know a lot about the six feet um, distance as a perfect and magical number, but certainly we know that for people who are coughing, sneezing, talking, you know, normal activities that they can produce these large droplets and travel that distance. Um, if you can stay further apart, that's even better. If you cannot go out of your house um, and, and stay home, that's even safer. And so it's the same idea around wearing a mask. If you can, please stay home. If you can wear a mask, wear a mask when you're going out for essential uh, needs. And the mask is, is in effect a barrier to, pre to prevent uh, large droplets from traveling and, and contacting another person. We believe that if two people are wearing a mask that are closer than six feet apart or are in the same distance, there's a much um, a less chance that they will be exposed to those respiratory droplets. Uh, so we're encouraging everyone in Delaware, if you're out and about, to wear your mask um, and make sure you're continuing to wash your hands, use hand sanitizer if you can't, access water and soap, uh, because even touching your mask could potentially transmit that virus. So please be careful about hand 
um, sanitizers and washing your hands and, and being cautious and trying to stay home if you can. I want to close out just by um, making sure people know what should they do if they feel sick or a loved one feels sick? And also, what kind of resources can people access right now from DHSS or the Division of Public Health that they might want to know about? So we want everyone to know that you should not be afraid to call your doctor if you have symptoms of COVID-19. Your doctor can refer you for testing at a local testing site that's stood up that's nearby. Uh, we really want to make sure that people are reaching out and coordinating. If you do not have a doctor, you can call Delaware 211 to make sure that you um, get an order for a test. We will quickly be evolving to a place where you may not need uh, a doctor's order, and some of the testing locations are also testing without uh, that doctor's order. But your doctor will be able to guide you on whether testing is appropriate and necessary. We don't want you to go out to a testing location um, if you don't need to. We also can provide through Delaware 211 resources around unemployment insurance or um, help with making sure that seniors can stay at home, whether that's uh, finding out how to get online groceries set up or uh, making sure people have access to uh, needed services and supplies. If they need their, their medications delivered, we can make sure we're arranging those services. We really want to make sure that people who are high risk are staying home. And so feel free to reach us at Delaware 211. We also have uh, services for people with a hearing impairment that can call 711. And people can also email us at dphcall, C-A-L-L, at Delaware.gov if they have uh, questions about symptoms or exposure or are worried about certain patterns that they're seeing out in their community and, and wanna um, uh, ask for additional help with making sure that everyone is safe. My name is Saran Cade. I am the Secretary of Labor for the State of Delaware. So I want to start out really, really basic here because I think that there's something that a lot of people don't understand, and that's coloring the way that they view a lot of the policy decisions being made right now. So how does unemployment actually work? Like, who can get it? How much can they get? For how long? And why? Well, first, how long is your show? Um, second, uh, uh, it's, it's definitely a complex question and it, and it requires two different buckets. That's post COVID versus pre COVID. Um, pre COVID unemployment is a system that is, um, a, a part of the new deal, uh, which provided unemployment benefits to individuals who were dislocated, uh, during, uh, the inactive depression. Um, it is a program that I've always been extremely proud and honored to represent an agency that, that holds it just because it's rooted in so much uh, history when it comes to um, its impact during major economic turmoil throughout our country. It is a system that is traditionally uh, supposed to be a partnership uh, between businesses and employees where businesses pay a percentage of their uh, or, or, or tax into the unemployment trust fund in order to pay out benefits to their employees if they are dislocated from work. Unemployment was designed in order not necessarily to be an income replacement program. So I think some people think about it in the same vein that they do, you know, temporary assistance for needy families or welfare. It's, it's, it's less of a, of, a, of a benefit like that and more of insurance. 
So if you think about insurance, employers pay the premium. And when an accident occurs, which, you know, could be a layoff or something along those lines, um, then, you know, those, those benefits and insurance benefits are paid out to their employees who were the individuals who were negatively impacted by the accident. So this is why we call it unemployment insurance. A lot of times people leave out the insurance and you kind of miss the entire point of the system if you leave out that key word, which is unemployment insurance. Um, so generally that's how it works in Delaware. Different states operate a little bit differently. Uh, unemployment, the unemployment system is regulated by the federal government uh, in partnership with the states. So the states can determine how much individuals receive in unemployment and they can determine how long they receive those unemployment benefits. Um, we have some say as to who can qualify for benefits, but all of, but, but, but that is mostly based on federal guidelines and standards. So the feds pretty much dictate, um, you know, for the most part, who can receive benefits, and, but mostly who can't receive benefits. Um, and so, you know, if you think about it, um, the, the federal government, essentially, the program is designed to be exclusive. It's, 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 it's designed to exclude people who would not qualify. It's never really designed to be a mass uh, benefits program for, for people. Uh, it was mostly designed to be, you know, a system that was in place to ensure that people didn't fall into abject poverty, uh, but at the same time uh, had standards that ensured that individuals didn't make too much money on unemployment that would discourage them from going to work. So, um, so very long and convoluted uh, system, but um, its impact, uh, I don't think anybody can really question. And I think that there's um, this straw man image going around right now, the idea that a worker could decide they don't want to go to work anymore and then all of a sudden be receiving more money in unemployment than they would have at their job. And is that real? So basically what occurred is during this, uh, uh, before COVID, it was determined, it's determined as to how much an individual will make is based on a series of standards that states implement. So states determine how much unemployment is, is for workers. Um, and of course, that's based on employer taxes. Now, Delaware is unique in that we are the, one of the few states remaining who do not tax employees for unemployment expenses. We only tax employers. In some states like New Jersey and Massachusetts and states like that, they're able to pay a larger weekly benefit amount because the unemployment, you know, burden of paying that premium is shared by the employee and the employer. In Delaware, it's solely the employee, the employer who pays into the unemployment trust fund. Not only that, but the state of Delaware itself doesn't even pay into the administration of unemployment. So you look at a state like 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 Pennsylvania, where their state pays in, I think, $50 million a year into their unemployment system. Delaware, we don't pay anything, anything into it. It's completely federally run with regard to administrative costs. Employers pay into the trust fund. So the input of taxpayers and workers into the system um, is really minute. Um, on the grand scheme of things, um, we all, our administrative funding is provided by the federal government, and that is kind of a sliding scale 
where you receive administrative funding based on the number of claims that you're projected to have that year. So if you can imagine as our unemployment rate has fallen over the last five years, so has the, the, the revenue that's come into the administration of unemployment that has fallen right along with it. So um, these are things that I, I don't think people really are, understand. So, you know, when we talk to people, they say, I've been paying in the unemployment my whole life. Well, no, you haven't, not in Delaware. Um, you know, so, so there are a lot of things that are really unique about Delaware's unemployment system that does, you know, provide less burden on the worker, but in a situation like we have now, um, you know, also creates greater burden on the overall system when, you know, on a dime, you're asked to provide benefits to historic numbers of, 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 of workers. So, um, so it's a, very, it's a very strange time that we're in. So now we're in a system where after COVID, even though the state's unemployment benefit, weekly benefit was set at $400 a week, the federal government has come in and provided an extra $600 a week, which means that you can have a maximum of $1,000 uh, a week in unemployment benefit. Yes, that is right. significantly higher than what some people would make in a year. Um, if you think about it, that's the equivalent of making $52,000 a year. The first slate of people who were impacted by this uh, were our hospitality workers, a lot of our waiters, waitresses, hostess and hostesses, bartenders. And so if you can imagine, a lot of those individuals ended up on unemployment and they were making more than they had probably made uh, uh, previously. Unfortunately, um, the, one of the concerns that I think people have is that this will be a disincentive for people to get out to work, which has always been a tenant of unemployment, especially since, you know, the welfare work movement in the 90s, where they really, uh, uh, you know, focused on making sure that they didn't inadvertently disincentivize people to get out to work. Um, and so, you know, we kind of ran right head on into that uh, argument. But essentially, the way the rule works is that if an individual who is on unemployment right now is offered a job opportunity, um, then they have to take it so long as they don't um, have a COVID-related reason. So as long as they're not taking care of a kid at home who's out of school, which is part of the expansion at Delaware that we instituted when this first occurred, um, so long as they don't have to self-quarantine or they're not, you know, taking care of someone who has a self-quarantine, so long as they don't meet any of those requirements. If you have someone who's just at home enjoying the fact that they're making more money than they probably did before and they just don't want to come back to work and their employer offers them a job and they don't meet any of those other requirements, that person would be cut off of unemployment benefits. So businesses still have a, a tool to encourage people to come back to work. Um, you know, people also have the ability now to work part-time and still earn unemployment benefits. So um, mm -hmm. businesses can coordinate with their employees in order to figure out how many hours they probably can work and still collect their, you know, some unemployment benefits. So that option is available as well. It's almost like a work share relationship with unemployment and the employer. Um, but, you know, again, it's not a perfect scenario. Yeah, if you're an employer and you call your employee back and you're paying, you know, $750 a week and this person is at home making $1,000 a week, will they be upset? They just might be. Um, you know, but, 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 you know, for some employers, 
this may be a, a, a worthwhile time to have a conversation about compensation uh, if they can. You know, uh, I, I encourage their employees to come back by offering perks, whether it's leave or, you know, uh, things like that if employers don't want to force them off of unemployment. Uh, so whether it's the extra vacation time, comp time, um, or, or other leave mechanisms or whatnot, um, that would be an opportunity for employers to really kind of sweeten the pot for their employees to get back to work. I know it's difficult because uh, a lot of them are, are restrained financially, but this is a time period where, you know, everybody is being forced to be more creative than we ever have been. In, uh, across the country over the last six weeks, I think the number is now around 30 million people have filed for unemployment. Has the volume gone up by around that much in Delaware here? Are you guys dealing with a, a huge influx right now? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, the highest number that we've, we've ever seen. The first two days, of um, the governor's shutdown of hospitality uh, firms, we pretty much exceeded our previous uh, monthly high uh, in just two days. Uh, previously, the highest number of claims that we had ever received in a month um, was about 9,600. Uh, in the first two days of the governor's shutdown, first, essentially the first week of the governor's shutdown, uh, we had exceeded that number. So since that time, we have processed over uh, 80,000 unemployment claims to this point, which to put in perspective um, is very close to um, uh, getting to a point where we've almost tripled what we um, uh, processed over the last two years. Um, wow. And so we're talking about, you know, extreme high numbers, which aren't going to stop because as soon as we roll out the program for independent contractors as outlined in the CARES Act uh, and self-employed individuals, um, you know, we expect that number to rise significantly as well. So we could be really looking at a scenario in the next few weeks where we've topped 100,000 unemployment claims, um, which again would, would probably be um, close to a quarter of the state's entire civilian workforce. I mean, this is a staggering number um, if, if we were able to, if we, if we, if we got there. Uh, and again, that's just, that would just be the number of individuals who filed unemployment claims. You know, it's a, it's a larger number of individuals who may be unemployed who have not filed unemployment for whatever reason. Maybe they don't qualify or, you know, maybe they have a, you know, a, a spouse or a person that they live with who, um, makes enough where they don't, they may not need to uh, apply for employment. So, and, and right now, it's just, it's, it doesn't look like it's a, a end in sight, especially if we're looking at uh, rolling out a program for independent contractors in the next week. If you're someone that is trying to file for unemployment in Delaware right now, what should do you expect? Well, one, if you're trying to apply for unemployment benefits, I would urge people to um, go to our website, www.ui.delawareworks.com. Uh, the vast majority of people who apply for benefits, so long as you don't make any mistakes, typically receive their benefit within the first week of their application. Um, you know, there are a lot of points that, you know, people do uh, have some problems with. So for starters, the security check on the front end, we use LexisNexis. And just like when you log into uh, a bank or the IRS or something like that, you know, you have to answer certain questions that are specific to your social security number. We got a lot of people who end up failing those um, security assessments and these things 
to add time onto processing your claim. And once that happens, these are issues like, you know, putting in a wrong social security number or, you know, you know, you got fired on or, or you got fired or dislocated from your job on March, you know, 15th, but you apply for benefits back, you know, March 10th when you heard that you were going to be on unemployment or that you were going to be unemployed. And so these are things that end up causing people's, you know, uh, claims to be held, in which case now they have to be escalated to a live person, and in which case now they're waiting in line uh, uh, as we continue to ramp up and add more staff to deal with the volume. So that's kind of the pot where, you know, people end up having to wait. Uh, but for everybody else, the vast majority of folks who apply for benefits, um, they typically receive their, you know, they go through the process and they, they add all the accurate information. Uh, they typically receive their benefit within the first week of application. And so to this point, um, we have processed, uh, or when I say probably we have started, we have issued benefits uh, to more than 60, to more than 60,000 people uh, to this point. And over the last two weeks, um, we've gone from prior to COVID, we probably issued about $1.5 million a week in unemployment benefits to over the last two weeks, we've issued about $68 million in unemployment benefits to workers throughout the state. Uh, and I know people, there are people that are concerned, you know, and we'll probably get to that, you know, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? And we're mechanisms that we can tap into in order to address it. But the most important thing right now is life and death. And that's making sure that people have the ability to shelter in place and they can't do it if they can't put food on the table. And if we drag our feet on providing benefits to workers, then it will create more pressure on the governor and uh, uh, the administration to open the economy back up prematurely. Um, and we could be looking at a scenario where uh, we inadvertently cause a mass spread of the virus. So I like to say that in this war against this, you know, virus, unemployment is kind of serving as air coverage for the governor and the administration and families throughout the state just to make sure that they have everything that they need, whether it be resources or clearing a path, just to make sure that they have the ability to, to shelter in place and, uh, um, you know, kind of adopt a bunker mentality. You, you talked about opening the economy prematurely. And there's been calls all around the country and in Delaware for us to start reopening our state as soon as we can. I know the administration and, you know, the leadership in the General Assembly have all decided that we need to value public health here. So what would we be risking for the workers who we'd be sending back to work by reopening right away? I mean, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but we'd be risking their lives. Um, and, and I don't know who wants to be the person who, who tells somebody that, you know, their life isn't as valuable as, you know, the, the economy or as, um, you know, commerce. And I, I don't know who wants to be that person. And so um, I'm not going to be that person. I know the governor isn't going to be that person. And so, you know, we have to do this responsibly. Look, we, I recognize, look, unemployment, as I said previously, was never designed to be an income replacement program. Um, what we're asking it to do, um, it has never done before. And so um, I recognize the barriers of that. So I recognize that unemployment will never replace a robust economy. 
Uh, it was never designed to be that. And it's not enough money um, that the state has or the federal government uh, uh, has in order to replace the economy. So we recognize that what we're asking people to do is essentially sacrifice um, in order to shelter in place in a lot of cases. So um, we definitely recognize the, the, you know, what we're asking people to do. I think it's important to recognize that, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you can't have a robust economy if you don't have a healthy, uh, uh, um, you know, consumer base. If your consumer base is not healthy, if your consumer base is sick, um, then you're, you're, the economy isn't going to be strong anyway. So if your consumer base is flooding hospital systems, if your consumer base it can, has the, has the, you know, make the decision between buying food and buying medication or paying for health care. If your consumer base is, you know, uh, uh, more focused on making sure that they can save money for funerals than vacations, um, then we're going to have, then, then you're not going to get the economy that you expect to get if you open prematurely. And so um, I think we have to be rather nuanced as to how we approach this. And um, there will be at some point a phased in uh, regeneration of the economy. Um, but again, it's important to recognize that the extreme health concerns that are out there, how contagious this virus is, and the people that it impacts, and, and, and what that could do to the economy if, if we operate um, from a standpoint of let's just do what feels good and see what happens. You know, when I say a phased-in approach, that means that even for the workforce, uh, there's going to be some people who are going to, you know, be maybe required to go back to work sooner than others. Um, there are going to be some folks who um, probably uh, may, because of what their job is or what their skill sets are or what have you, uh, they may not be able to jump right back into the, the workforce. Um, skills are going to play a role in this as well. Uh, so, if we, you know, typically when something like this, you know, maybe not a virus, but a recession or any type of change in the, the economy occurs or the marketplace occurs, um, the, you know, folks who feel the brunt of that the most typically are low-wage workers, and uh, this situation is no different. And one thing that we see is that when this occurs, that businesses begin to change in order to adapt to the changing environment. And typically when they change, it impacts, again, these low-wage workers. And so there may be a new demand for skills or a demand for new skill sets um, that people have to get you know, brought back up to speed on. Uh, you may have companies who have operated with a skeleton crew to this point and may have devised new strategies in order to be profitable, which may not require them hiring the same number of staff back. We recognize that yeah. there's going to be numerous uh, aspects of this where individuals may not get back into the economy that they left. And so I think not only for unemployment, but, you know, the added responsibility of employment and training that falls to the Department of Labor. Our staff are already um, working with surrounding, surrounding uh, states, um, other organizations, companies to provide distance learning solutions and tools for training, uh, things like that in order to, you know, kind of meet that demand uh, uh, that, that we see arising uh, uh, as we start coming back uh, from this shelter-in-place yeah. requirement. Uh, I think going forward, the state of Delaware as a whole uh, has to have kind of a come-to-Jesus moment or whoever your, your, your deity is. 
um, moment in order to think about whether or not the safety nets that should be in place for workers truly exist. If this time period is kind of showing us anything is that the social safety net for workers in our state is razor thin. And um, for independent contractors and self-employed workers who, you know, who are operating and working, these folks uh, who we're seeing are tremendous, tremendous numbers, these workers have no protection in the workplace. Uh, they are not protected from the traditional laws of anti-discrimination. Uh, they are not entitled to workers' compensation. They are, you know, not entitled to traditionally unemployment. But in a lot of workplaces, they are treated in the same fashion as a traditional employee, uh, but denied all of those uh, same benefits that other employees receive. This is what we call misclassification of workers. And uh, now more than ever, uh, that discrepancy is being seen. And so we're going to have to have a, a really hard conversation as a state, as an administration, as a legislature, um, to think about what workers should expect when they come to work in Delaware, what we want them to, uh, what type of experience we want them to have. Do we want them to operate in a space where uh, they're one week away from ab abject, abject poverty? Do we want that? Uh, do we think that that is going to be something that is going to encourage workers to want to be in our state? Uh, and, and, and if workers don't want to be in our state and won't feel comfortable being in our state, what businesses uh, uh, want to? Um, and so these are questions that are, that are, that are not easy. Uh, these are questions that are going to be hard. But um, if this has shown us anything, it's things like paid family leave, short-term disability, uh, all of these programs that in the past I think have been presented as anti-business. Uh, what we see now uh, is that that's the exact opposite of what they are, that systems that are in place to protect workers and provide workers with a stable safety net um, are not anti-business, but are rather pro-business and help to encourage and nurture uh, a workforce that is incredibly needed by uh, any growing economy. So, um, you know, if, 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 if I could put a bug in anybody's ear right now, um, it would be that when we come out of this, I just hope that um, we don't go back to, uh, you know, what we've done in the past and that we think about what we can be doing to prevent this in the future. Uh, my name is Damian Stefano, and I am the director of the Division of Small Business under the Department of State. Well, I think in the short term, uh, a lot of them are very nervous. Uh, they're very uh, stressed. I think what we hear a lot, and I talk to small business owners a few times a day, uh, is that they've never seen anything like this before. They never planned for it, and, and to be fair to them, I don't think you could plan for it. Uh, I don't think you can really business plan for a 70% revenue reduction uh, that has no uh, clear end in sight. And so, you know, I sympathize with a lot of them as they look at the future of their business right now and don't know if they'll be able to stay in business. Um, I think we kind of play a dual role because while we assist small businesses, we're also on the side of trying to figure out how best, because of the knowledge we have of the macro economy in Delaware, how best to structure 
the containment efforts, you know, where we can allow, we, we are the entity that people petition to when they want to be allowed to uh, transact in a different way. And there's a times when we'd love to have them be able to expand how they transact, but for public health reasons, we just can't. And that's, I think, the hardest thing to deliver to business owners. So in the short term, I think that's what they're dealing with. How do I deal with severe revenue reductions, both because of the containment efforts and because of, I think, the way consumers are behaving? People aren't going out. Uh, they're not spending money now because they're uncertain. The, the times are the future is uncertain for consumers. Uh, people have lost jobs. Uh, or, or lost income, um, lost retirement savings, and all of that cycles back to the small businesses in our community. So I think in the short term, that's what they're dealing with. Many of them are having to adjust their business model to deliver their products or services to their customers in a new way, and we're trying to help them with that. We're also trying to get, get funding in their hands. Um, so we have uh, a loan program. It's called the Hospitality Emergency Loan Program. Uh, to service the hospitality industry and to try to also help the cosmetology industry uh, get short-term loans to cover fixed expenses. I think the the theory we took is that many businesses, I think I've seen some surveys, you know, upwards of 50% of the, um, the kind of consumer-facing retail businesses or restaurants or uh, business B2C kind of businesses uh, have closed for the time being. Um, but what we want to make sure is that when we do enter the recovery phase, as many of them are ready to reopen as possible. And so that's what our support is is tailored to: is how do we keep you in your location? Because if you if you get evicted or if you uh, you get put into a bankruptcy or a collections phase, it's really difficult for you to ever reopen again. Um, and so, can we preserve that? I like to tell people our goal right now is to try to hit the pause button on some of these companies. If, if they're pausing, we want to make sure we're supporting them in that so that that pause doesn't turn into something more severe, because I think that that's going to be an incredibly important part of moving to the recovery phase of this and having a strong economy as quickly as possible. And, and that kind of goes to your question about the long-term effects. I think in the long-term, uh, which I really consider recovery and then post-recovery, uh, in the recovery phase, I think the concerns of the businesses are, one, when are we going to move into that phase and how can I be prepared to move into it? How much lead time will I have before we move into it, um, which is something we try to make sure we're communicating to, to them as much as possible. Um, part of it is we just don't know the trajectory of, of uh, the spread of the virus, which makes it hard to give um, accurate timetables. We're always constantly having to adjust our timetables based on the data that we're seeing coming in. Um, longer term, I think it's one, how will I have the, the cash necessary as I do move to reopen to repurchase inventory, uh, to bring my staff back, to get back up to where I was prior to this, because many of them have had to work with landlords and put off bills. They've had to work with uh, other creditors and put off payments. Those payments are going to start to come due while their regular business operation payments are due while they get back up and running. So how do they manage that? That's going to be something critical, I think, for us to support them and uh, make sure they have the cash they need to keep their business running and, and be able to generate income uh, from their customers. And then it's consumer confidence. That's the big unknown that I hear now more and more brought up is when we do reopen, will the customers come back? Um, and I don't think anybody knows for sure what level people will be willing to go out 
um, and, and spend money and do things that they used to do before. I think it will be gradual. I think people will be cautious at first. And I think the rules will be uh, stringent at first as, as we move through, uh, through the phases that, that we've outlined to reopen uh, the economy. So I think it's incredibly important that we as a government and, and as a state uh, continue to support those businesses as they reopen to start explaining to people why it is safe to follow the guidelines. I mean, we need a high degree of confidence in any phase one, phase two guidelines we put out. Uh, that we are doing things with an eye on public health, because ultimately I think that's going to, to be the best thing for the economy as well, because consumers need to believe that the choices we are making are being made with their health in mind. And that will give people more confidence to, to go outdoors, to go to their local restaurant, to go to their local uh, retail shop, and to start getting back to some sense of normalcy. Um, and then in the, the very long term, the post-recovery, I think a lot of businesses are going to put a lot more emphasis on their digital strategy. And that goes for any business. Um, some were already, I mean, this was what's interesting about, I think about the, the pandemic is it's accelerating trends we were already seeing. So businesses have been, small business has been focusing on their digital strategy for, you know, two decades now, but this is certainly accelerating the need and the urgency for you to have a robust digital infrastructure to deliver your services to your customers and to let your customers know about your services. And we're seeing a lot of that. And, and again, just something we need to continue to support is because large businesses have the resources to throw, you know, millions of dollars into a technology platform or a mobile application. I mean, I think as consumers, we see these mobile applications and we think it's easy. Those cost millions and millions of dollars to develop a good mobile application. But what you're seeing is that is how people are interacting with business. And during this time, big businesses are getting information out through their through their mobile application. And it, it so it it puts small businesses at a resource disadvantage that I think is a, is just there's it's a scale that maybe didn't exist before we all had mobile computers in our pockets. Um, and I think this is again a trend that existed before the virus, but is just being accelerated. Yeah. Uh, by the virus, the, the amount of emphasis that's being placed on that sort of uh, an infrastructure for any size company. Oh, the Amaz- Amazons of the world, those companies have the resources to ride this out, even if it, their business is down, even if the revenue is down. But a lot of small businesses are really struggling with that, like you were talking about. And is there a concern that larger businesses are going to use this opportunity to outcompete small businesses? Is there um, Are there measures being taken or thought about to try and prevent that? Are there small businesses doing new things to try and prevent that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good, it's a really good question because it's a really big uh, problem. It's something our office was working on prior to this, uh, to the pandemic was, I mean, we had a, we, we stood up a, a grant program about a year ago with an eye on exactly that is how do we get resources in the hands of these small businesses to help them compete with these, these large businesses that have, you know, I think Amazon's worth more than a trillion dollars, which is just, I don't even, I can't even conceptualize that, that amount of money. Um, so, again, it's one of those things, I think, it existed before the virus. Uh, it has been made uh, more acute and, and accelerated uh, because of it. And I think, you know, what we need to do is make sure small businesses have access to free resources as much as possible. 
uh, a lot of times consultation resources uh, or consulting resources that can help them figure out things like what's my digital media strategy, uh, what, how do I reach customers through uh, Facebook platforms? I mean, there are ways that you, almost, you leverage the big business platforms to sell your product or to get your message out broader. Um, but, but they need help in, in a lot of times uh, figuring out some of those things because sometimes these small businesses have been around before those infrastructures existed and they've gotten very used to a certain way of doing business and it's worked for them for a long time. Um, to the extent this is helping them to realize the importance of that, we just need to make sure that as they do realize the importance of that and they're looking for assistance, that we're getting them in touch with, with the right resources. And whenever possible, uh, we're providing them a free support uh, to do that stuff. What kind of things are small businesses doing right now to innovate, to continue to reach people? Um, are they changing their practices? Is there anything that's interesting or new you're seeing happening? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of change in a very short period of time. And I think to, to your question here, Sam, and then your your previous question too, both both of them are going to have positive um uh, the, the changes are, I think, going to have a positive long-term impact on the other side of this. Um, they're getting really creative with how they how they deliver their their product, and actually, probably where I see even more creativity is in the delivery of services uh, digitally. So you have gyms right now who are switching to uh, video models. So you could sign up for a subscription video uh, subscription gym membership at your local gym, and it's done all digitally. Uh, there's actually significant scale advantages for the business that does that too, because now they can deliver uh, a training course to a hundred people uh, through a digital recording that they can then replay if they need to. So we're starting to see that from businesses that basically can't have customers in their uh, locations. And I don't know that that's all going to go away when, when things reopen. I think they'll, they'll go back to having customers in their locations but hopefully what they'll have learned there too is there's there's an alternate way of delivering uh, their service. So so we're seeing that. Um, I think restaurants are getting really innovative with how they structure their menus. Um, I don't know that that's something that will continue after after this. We'll have to see. But like we have we have restaurants now who are who are basically redesigning their entire menu um, to try to structure it as a meal delivery service. So they're saying, you know, on Monday night, we're going to have this family meal available. And you could sign up for two deliveries a week. You could sign up for a delivery a week. You could sign up to have it delivered every night of the week uh, at a flat price based on, on the, the frequency with which you have deliverers. Uh, and then they, we just see them all utilizing social media platforms in order to promote these things, in order to, I think you, you, what you try to do is you try to have organic customer engagement. So you try to get people who are participating in your product to talk about it on their social media gives a lot of credibility to, uh, to what you're doing um, and grow that way. And I think it's a unique, it is a unique advantage. Nobody's going to run to their social media account. Not, it's not very common that people are going to run to their social media account and talk about how great Amazon is because they're a big business. Nobody really, you know, wants to share with their friends. They just discovered this great new service called Amazon. Right. But, if your local small business, if your local small business is doing something cool that they haven't been doing before, I think there's a lot more potential to engage the customer in a way that gets them to proactively go and say, you know, look at Joe's gym. I just joined a video course and it was great. And that is 
you know, I think there's a lot of marketing studies on that, but, but I think that is, you know, 10 times more powerful even than what the small business might put on their own platform because it has a lot more credibility coming from a customer uh, when they say that. And businesses are figuring out new strategies to try to get satisfied customers to do that for them um, in a way that's not inauthentic, which is, which is, I think, really important. And again, kind of exploits a key advantage they have over the big businesses that's not going to go away. What is sort of different between your role right now with small businesses and, say, the federal government's role? Yeah, we work a lot with the federal government. Uh, I see – so the federal government has resources that we, we can't match. Um, you look at the statistics just in Delaware for the amount of uh, PPP, uh, payroll protection plan loans that were issued. Uh, I think over – in the first round, this is even before the, the new round of funding that, that uh, came out in late April – we had over a billion dollars uh, in loans put out just in Delaware. Mm-hmm. So we always know we can't match that scale. So I think what we need to be really smart about is to be more nimble, uh, to be able to fill the gaps where where maybe that money is not going to get to. And a lot of times that means local, uh, you're kind of, uh, I, hate, I, I don't love this term, but the prototypical mom and pop business um, that might have a difficult time accessing uh, a payroll protection plan loan or might have a difficult time uh, putting up collateral for the loan or, or getting uh, getting in line at the bank to get those kinds of loans. Um, we have relationships with a lot of those businesses a lot of times because of the nature of our size being smaller than the federal government. We have developed relationships with them over the years or we have relationships with groups that can introduce us to more of those people so we can find them, and, and our programs are really structured to try to target individuals who we felt like may have a more difficult time accessing the federal funds or may have a more short-term acute cash need um, so that they can't wait you know, uh, for the next round of funding to be put into uh, to the loans. Uh, we're somewhat of the, the medium to larger-sized businesses um, – they may be able to wait for those things a little bit longer and they maybe have a better chance of being able to access them. Um, so we stay in close contact with the federal, federal government representatives, both our delegation uh, staff, but also staff at the, the small business administration uh, to make sure we're, it, it's never going to be perfect that we're filling each gap perfectly. There's always going to be overlap, but we want to minimize the overlap in what we're doing and what they're doing so that we help as many people as possible. So something specific to the federal government I want to ask about is uh, Mm -hmm. some people are watching how the federal relief is being dispersed and they're not happy with it. uh, Specifically, a lot of those loans the federal government handed out ended up in the hands of bigger corporations, you know, say Shake Shack is one of them that uh, received payment protection loans. Um, Are you doing things to help prevent that happening in Delaware? Are you targeting funds in a certain way? Well, I'll say first, I do think, you know, perception can be misleading on on even the federal program. Sometimes I I know the stories about Shake Shack and a couple of the other big business or larger businesses that I guess were able to qualify for a PPP loan. But I, I will say I know many good small businesses here uh, that have qualified for that. I think, you know, if you if you peel back a little bit of the layers on that, you'll find uh, 
the PPP loans have helped a lot of small businesses that would not survive if they didn't have them. Um, so I think on the whole, they've been a net positive for the small business community. Um, I think for our programs, the, the best way to, to avoid um, having people qualify are how we, that, that are just larger businesses that really we try to push to the federal government is one, um, just the size of the loans we're able to provide. So our loans are $10,000 a month. If you're a big business, $10,000 isn't going to really move the needle for you to even go through the effort to apply. Uh, and But for a small business, $10,000 a month is a really big deal. That could be the difference between you being able to pay your lease and not paying your lease. Um, so that's one right. way we do it. And that's a resource thing. We simply can't go above $10,000 a month. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to help you know, as many businesses as we want to help. Um, the second thing is we put a revenue cap on a qualification for our loan. So if you have more than $2.5 million in annual revenue, you don't qualify for our loans. Um, we did change that revenue cap for the restaurant groups. So we made that up to $15 million. Yeah, not really a large company if you're talking about less than $15 million in, in annual revenue. Um, the reason we did that is they didn't qualify for the federal program. So, so again, trying to target those groups um, and get to as many of those small businesses as we could. Uh, but that revenue cap's really important because I think it allowed us to kind of get at the size business we wanted to get at. And really, even a company in Delaware that is large in Delaware Unless you're operating in multi multiple states or internationally, uh, you're not going to be able to get above a 15 million. So, so they might seem large in Delaware, but they're still probably a pretty small business who falls under that level. So right, right. Um, that's how we did it. And then what we did was we use, I'm not going to get too much into it, but we use what's called affiliation rules, um, which is how we made sure you're not, businesses can organize an individual location under a separate LLC. And if you're not careful about it, you can have a business that has, and I think this is, I don't know all the details of what happened with Shake Shack, but this, this might be why they kind of qualified for that loan. And you look at it and say, well, that's a really big company or public company. Um, each individual location might be under the revenue threshold. We kind of roll them up into a group uh, so that if you have multiple locations or even multiple different businesses, we're counting all of that against our revenue cap to try to avoid that scenario where you, where you have somebody um, who we're just really not targeting with our program become eligible. If you're a small business owner, um, if you're in the small business community in Delaware, what kind of resources do you have access to right now? Are there any that people might not know about? Definitely make sure that uh, you're getting educated on what's available. I, I, I recommend if anybody does want to know about the programs, go to our website. It's uh, business.delaware.gov slash coronavirus. Um, we've made sure to, to post everything there, both the federal and the, uh, the state resources. Um, and then if, if they're still unsure, I'd say there's a phone number on our website and they can reach out directly to us and we'll get them in touch with the business manager. Um, there's a program, whether it's federal or state, that's available almost any type of small business. Um, now, obviously, there's, there's some issues from time to time with how long it might take you to get a particular loan um, through the SBA or through our office. But we, we try to work with people to, uh, to find a solution if, if we can uh, to, try to try to help them with their problems.
Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dehousedems, on Twitter at dehousedems, and on Instagram also at dehousedems. More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed. 